teachings on hospitality for the church, what it means for us. Last week we got to survey some of the New Testament scriptures about hospitality, and today we're going to try to move into some practicals. Uh, What are some things that the church can do? In fact, what are some things that the Bentonville Church of Christ, our church family, is doing right now and in the months to come to hear the teachings about hospitality, to put them into action, uh, to become a little bit improved in what we do uh, as individuals and as a church in the way that we reach out to others and the way that we show love to others and the way that we welcome others. And so uh, hopefully today by the end you'll have a few practical ideas that you can use. Uh, But there was a fascinating story in the news just last night Uh, And it's still in the news this morning. You can probably find it on USA Today. This is the title of the article, of of the report. Canceled wedding turns into meaningful time for homeless guests. Okay, so canceled wedding turns into meaningful time for homeless guests. Well, that piqued my curiosity because just today I was going to be preaching on uh, essentially on throwing a party. And so, you know, Jesus is teaching from Luke 14. And I saw this and I had to read it. And so here's just a few of the details of what happened just this weekend in Indianapolis. Uh, there was a wedding that was planned. Um, the bride's name was in the article, Sarah Cummins. And uh, her and her fiance, for uh, unnamed reasons, called off the wedding only days before the event. And they had spent an unrefundable $30,000 on the reception. You, you can say, wow. Wow, yeah, right, okay. And they had a choice. Uh, they're going through a difficult time. Do we just, you know, bite the bullet, cancel the event, and, and, and feel bad that the wedding is off? Or do we use it for some momentary good? Do we use it for some uh, gain? And so the couple decided to throw the party Anyways, they, they made a few moderations. They removed the head table. The article says that instead of having the cake cut out amongst all of the guests, they had it cut behind the scenes in advance so that that wouldn't be too wedding-like. And they decided to invite in 170 homeless residents from four different shelters in Indianapolis. The idea caught on so fast in the city, one of the reporters said uh, that there was semi-formal apparel being donated by various individuals throughout the city to give to the homeless members of the community who were going to attend this party, and a wave of goodwill spread across the city as local businesses jumped in to make the event all it could be uh, for homeless residents, some of which were homeless veterans, and that really got the city excited. Isn't that an interesting Uh, an amazing, in a way, concept or application of what can happen when somebody looks beyond themselves and decides to use uh, their misfortune or a momentary setback for the good of others, and especially for bringing in those who otherwise wouldn't have been invited. It doesn't match perfectly with the text we read from today, but it matches up in a spiritual sense, it reverberates in a spiritual sense that ought to put a smile on our faces. And so, no matter how you're feeling today, this morning, I want to challenge you. Put a smile on your face for just a moment. Go ahead, do it. Do it with me. Put a smile on your face. Put a smile on your face. Now look to the person next to you and put a smile on, the, on your face and smile at them. Go ahead. Try it out. Try it out. Yeah. Oh, I know. You're all giggling. You're giggling like you're school kids or something, right? Yeah. Isn't that amazing how that works? And so little moments like this 
can truly spread goodwill. Look at it, it even landed in Bentonville, Arkansas this morning. A little bit of goodwill. And so let's turn to the text. And, and in the text, um, as we encounter this instructions from Jesus, what we're going to find is that we're jumping into the middle of a story. Uh, we're really jumping into the middle of, uh, of what is several back-to-back events related uh, to a party. And so this is the first thing we see in verse 12, uh, which Danton read for us just a few moments ago. Then he turned to his host. Then Jesus turned to his host. And you should notice when you read this line that we're jumping into the middle of something. Because if there is a then, there must have been something already set up before it. He doesn't just turn to his host in thin air. There was something going on. Jesus is being hosted, and in the middle of the event, he turns to his host. Let's back up a minute. Let's zoom out. Uh, We don't have time to read the entire chapter, but I want you to see why Jesus is turning to his host and what's going on. In Luke 14, the first 24 verses all... Uh, are in the middle of this one event, one event in which Jesus is invited first to a party, to a banquet at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And so verses 1 through 6 describe that he was invited to the party, he attended the party, and then Jesus does a shocking and awkward thing. Well, maybe not shocking to us. We come to expect Jesus now to do surprising things. But think about this. The middle of a dinner party... Uh, with, with nice people around, the food's been prepared, they've made preparations for days, they have Jesus, this uh, you know, notable teacher, he's attending the party, so the guest list is looking pretty good, and here comes Jesus into the party uh, with all of these other people ready to meet him and ready to shake his hand, and the first thing Jesus does is he sees a man who is sick, and he calls attention to the sick man in the middle of the host's nice party. Not probably, you know, the kind of actions that the the host is beginning to feel uncomfortable, right? I've brought you to this nice place, and the first thing you do is point out this man with dropsy, which would have been swelling of the arms and the legs and other body parts. He He would have looked really bad, and this is an uncomfortable moment for the host, and Jesus heals the man as an example of what should happen through our hospitable hearts not just our hospitable parties, but that hospitality in its party form should turn into hospitality of the heart form where we see someone in need and we have compassion on them. Now, the, the party continues to get a little bit more awkward. In verses 9 through 11, Jesus takes it upon himself to turn to the guests at the party and give advice about where they should sit and how they should choose their seat at the party. Most of you who've who've been a Christian for any number of time have read this story before. Jesus instructs them not to sit at the head of the table in the best seat because it will be embarrassing if the host has to ask you to move down if someone more prominent comes in. So he says, sit at the low place at the table, and that way the only thing that could happen is you get invited up. You can't get invited any lower. And so we've heard that story Uh, We've probably moralized that story, but did you ever understand or did you think that this is the second event in a string of awkward moments that Jesus introduces at a real person's live party while they have all their guests in the room? He turns to those guests and says, you know, let me tell you how to choose the right seat. The third thing. So the third thing is what we're going to read in closer detail today. The third awkward moment is that Jesus then turns to his host, what we just read, and he gives advice to the host. 
about who to invite to a party. And again, with all the people watching, Jesus is telling the host, essentially, you could have done more or you could have used this as an opportunity to bless poor people in the community. Uh, They would have been welcome here as well. The awkwardness increases to the point, to the point at which someone in the party feels the need to speak out against this successively more awkward environment that Jesus is introducing. And so in verse 15, there is a key moment in which someone speaks a great truth, but it's in irony. In Luke's gospel, it's written in irony because the man says, blessed are those, all those who get to eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, right? He's trying to change the mood of the environment. Someone just speaks up after Jesus says to the host and the guests, here's how you should do a party. And they say, well, I guess blessed are all of those who get to come to the feast in the kingdom of God, right, guys? And he tries to change the mood, except Jesus won't have it. He's going to drive the point home. And so Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a great feast in which all of the fancy and well-to-do guests could not come. And the wise host decides to send out into the alleyways and bring in the people who wouldn't have been expected at the feast. To send out into the countryside even and find the bumpkins and the rednecks and bring them into the feast where they are welcomed, they are served as guests of honor. And Jesus refuses to let go of the moment of teaching no matter how awkward it became in this dinner party. You, you kind of wonder, don't you, sometimes when you read a story like this, did that Pharisee ever invite anyone famous to his party again? Maybe not. Let's take a close look at these verses 12 through 14 that are our focus for this morning. Then he turned to his host in the middle of the party, and Jesus said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, and notice uh, he's talking about throwing a little festival here, a feast, something for the community. And it might be helpful for you to put your mind into the first century and put your mind into Judea in the first century. We're not talking about a large Roman city. We're talking about the villages and the small towns in the Judean countryside where Jesus grew up and did his ministry. Most of these towns would be you know, only a few blocks, if you could call it that, at most. Many of them were situated around a well where people could draw water or near a well where people could get water. There would usually be a square somewhere near the gate of the city. In particular, in these times, it was common for the elderly people in the community to go out and sit near the gate, especially the elderly men who were considered elders in their community, and to sit near the gate at the end of the day and talk the talk. And then, if they saw travelers come in, it was their joy and their responsibility to invite travelers into their homes because rarely were there inns in these small towns. And yet, when someone would throw a wedding feast, it wasn't uncommon that much of the city would be invited, a population of 80 or 90 or 100 in the small Judean villages, and yet they might leave out uh, some of the residents of the city who are known to all, who sit at the gates and beg at the gates, who are known to have disease or are poor or are lame or in some way are less than and marginalized, and they may be some of the only residents not invited 
to the wedding feast. And so Jesus is going to say, when you throw one of these feasts, a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. And he surely doesn't mean that you can't ever do that, but this is the reason that he gives this advice. He says, for they will invite you back. Okay, so you can hang out with your friends, but just don't expect that that is what God means when he says, you know, go the extra mile. Love in a way uh, that is truly generous. Love your enemies. Uh, This isn't the same thing as, as biblical hospitality when we just have reciprocal fun with our friends. He says, so they could invite you back and that would be your only reward. You, you don't really gain spiritually out of just hosting friends that are in the same social status. You have fun, you can have good fellowship, but it's not necessarily a net gain in the kingdom. Instead, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind from your Judean villages, these people that you probably already know, you walk past them every day, you you converse with them almost every week, and you know them, and invite those people, and then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. And so again, you see in closing of this advice, the advice again circulates around What can someone do back for you? And when they can't reciprocate, that is when the kingdom of God gets a net gain advantage. The kingdom of God has grown incrementally because of the inclusion of someone who couldn't pay their own way, they couldn't reciprocate, they had nothing of their own to give. And before we move past this verse into some practical applications, I want you to think about this passage with me on three different levels. Okay, so let's start at the ground floor. And the ground floor, the first level, is what was going on in Jesus' world at the time when he gives this advice to the people at the real life party. And in his world, Jesus has been traveling around the Judean countryside. He's been traveling around Galilee. Then he's been preaching to people indiscriminately that the kingdom of God has come and that they are welcome into it. And almost without exception, as Jesus has been preaching, the people that are lesser, that are at the end of the rope, that are at the bottom of the pile, respond to his message and they follow him in droves. And yet the people who might have something to lose, some social standing, they're elite in society, and it might be inconvenient to be too closely tied to this Jesus, this this teacher who's going around leveling everything out. It's dangerous to become friends with him. He might come to your party and tell everybody what to do. And so the people in elite places in society have by and large, at this point in his ministry, opted out. They'll give him a hearing, but they won't commit very far. And so Jesus is experiencing this kind of reception in a real life way in his ministry. Here's, Here's the second level. Let's go up a floor. Why does Luke tell this story at this moment in the gospel. What is Luke trying to communicate to us as he recounts this moment from Jesus' ministry? Luke is living in a period in time when the church has already been growing. And so people throughout the world are starting to respond to Jesus' message. And there's a broader acceptance and rejection of Jesus taking place where the Gentiles are largely accepting Christ. 
They're pouring into the kingdom. They were at the end of the line, the last, the least, the bottom of the pile, and yet they're following him in droves. And the people of Israel, some have converted. Some are following. And yet many, especially those in powerful positions, are trying to convince the Gentiles, no, 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 no. You've got to become Jews like us under our authority, and then you can go to the great feast. Once you've been circumcised, once you submit to the temple, then you can go to this great feast that Jesus talks about, but not until you're under our authority. And so they aren't truly responding and committing all the way to Jesus. Instead, he's a little too awkward for them. He lets in people that are a little bit still unacceptable to them. He creates problems at all of their church gatherings, all of their Sanhedrin gatherings, all their synagogue gatherings, all of their you know, church parties. And so that's the second level. What's the third level? What does this passage mean for you and me when we read it and apply it today? Because certainly we could get along, you know, we can do with Jesus on that first level. Uh, let's just do ministry indiscriminately and accept those who respond. We should do that. And there's a second level at which we understand there will be some uh, cultures, there'll be some, uh, you know, maybe uh, socioeconomic bands in society that are more likely or less likely to respond to the gospel teaching. But we're going to teach it indiscriminately. We're going to work through those problems like Luke and the world of Jews and Gentiles. We're just going to, we're going to preach and we're going to keep ministering. But what about the third level? What do we as a church do that's practical now so that we work this out to make sure that the Bentonville Church of Christ and all of the Christians in it are ministering to those who are at the end of the line and the bottom of the pile so that the people in that position in Bentonville can hear good news when they encounter us, that they can hear an invitation into this spiritual feast, that they could hear an invitation into our parties, the real ones that we actually throw and the church services that we have together. Let's look at a few practicals uh, in our remaining minutes this morning. And this is the first question, and maybe, uh, maybe one of the most life-changing for me, and I hope that you'll take the time to write this down in your bulletin and think about this for a few minutes today. And the question is this, how would you treat someone if they were in your own home? Because over the years, we have created something of a distinction between the way that we host people in our homes and what we expect of guests who arrive at our church and come into a worship service. Somehow, over the centuries, we have made home a safe place that is fairly comfortable, warm, with couches and cups of coffee, and yet church is a place where we expect people to know that they ought to be reverent that they know that they ought to come in and, and know some things about Scripture. Sometimes we forget to be hospitable. And we don't have to change everything about church to get the spiritual principle out of what we do at home. Simply think about what, how would you treat someone in your home? What would be the spiritual way or the interpersonal way? How would you speak to them? And so here's a few examples of this. In your home, would you take the time if somebody came into your small group gathering? to find them a seat? Would you already be in a seat facing in a certain direction where nobody really notices them and you expect them to find one on their own? Or would you take a moment to look around at your gathering to see the people that have responded to your party and say, let me pull in this extra chair. In fact, let me slide over and give one for you. I bet we all know what the answer would be at home. Would you get them a drink? 
Would you make introductions between them and the other people at your party or expect them to do it all on their own? Would you be willing to share your name first with them and to say to them, hi, my name's Josh Bundy. I don't think I've met you yet. It's, it's really great that you came. Because these things, as simple as they are when we host at home, might be the same kinds of principles, just the same simple things that God expects of us when we come together as the body of Christ and someone comes in our door who doesn't know us. Look at this scripture that kind of drives that nail home for us. Famous from Jesus, Matthew 7, 12, the, this great commandment, do to others what you would like them to do to you, do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. This golden rule, as it's often called. Do unto others as you... And that's all we're really talking about this morning. How would you like to be treated when you arrive at a place where you don't fit or you don't know if you fit? And the answer to that question would be a practical thing that you can do today at church or in your community to make a difference for someone else. Here's the next one, the second practical. This is number two. The New Testament uh, doesn't know these two words. This is shocking to me. I did, a, I did a Bible search several times this week to confirm this. The New Testament doesn't know these two words, outreach and evangelism. Those two words don't take place in the Bible. Can you believe that? We say those words all the time, don't we? Uh, let's figure out how we can do better outreach, right? Now, to, to be uh, clear, these principles occur in Scripture, but these words don't. Why do they not occur in Scripture? Why is this? It's because every time Scripture talks about these ideas, it is more specific, not more uh, ambiguous. The Scripture is more specific than these ambiguous terms that we sometimes use. And so the Scriptures, the New Testament, will use words like this. To preach, that's one kind of outreach or evangelism. To proclaim good news, which is what the word evangelist or, or evangelism really would have meant in the original language was simply proclaiming good news. Or these, witness and be hospitable. These are the practical ways that the New Testament speaks about ideas like evangelism and outreach. And I want you to think about a real-life example from our church in recent years that drives this point home. We've had two very successful and exciting uh, what would you call the young adults class that went from four or five people to like 70 uh, six or seven years ago? A revolution, a rebirth, I don't know what you would call that. Uh, this exciting renewal where this one class was growing and growing and growing. And why did it grow? Because the word was being taught, but because Kent and Teresa Webb decided we're going to create a hospitable environment where we, we feed this group and we host them and we create a space for them and we treat them like we'd want to be treated. And then there was soil for the word to take root in and that class boomed. And guess what? It's happening again in 2017. Most of the people from that class have, have grown and married and have children and integrated into this church family. It's been beautiful. And then there was a vacuum again because, you know, like I used to be in the mid-20s and now I'm in my 30s and so I, I don't, I'm not as hospitable towards a 24-year-old as I used to be. And so Max and Becky Kuntz and some others with them have decided let's create again another new environment where we create pockets of places and food and activities that are appropriate for a group like this. In other words, let's host 
host them for a season until God blossoms in their community and in their environment and creates something lasting, something that permeates through the whole church that won't fade away. It's beautiful. Amen, church? Amen. Okay, and so here's, uh, here's another scripture that drives that home. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Notice the practicality. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And every time you see these principles turn into a real action in the church, you can see this scripture being fulfilled. Here's the third one. Uh, Early church, agape meals, hospitality in action right there in the early church. And I don't have time today to talk about the whole history of what the agape meals were, but in a nutshell, this is what they were. The church would throw a a big meal, a feast of compassion, where the rich would provide the food and the poor from the community could come in, and everyone was equal at this table. Next month, we're going to spend three weeks talking about communion. You go, wow, how are we going to get three weeks out of communion, right? Well, trust me. It's going to be so good. We're going to talk about this agape meal thing a little bit more and about what the communion was meant to do in the community of the church. But Everett Ferguson, a prominent Church of Christ teacher and scholar, has said this about these early agape meals. He said, one use of this word agape came to be this meal that was served for benevolent purposes. The instrument, uh, the instructions from Luke 14, the passage we read today, were taken seriously in the early church. They thought that actually meant to do it. Wow. And so the agape came to mean the love feast. And this is a testimony to the practical nature of early Christian love and the prominence of a meal as a way of expressing that love. And so even though, uh, you know, we have uh, several more messages in this series and I can't give you all of the details today, I want to leave you with some encouragement about one thing that our church is working on together. And we're going to be talking about it more next week and on July 30th, and that's this. We recognize that in our church, worship is the reason that brings us together. And there are ways to serve in worship. You might lead prayer or singing or help with the AV, or you may speak or do all of these things, but we realize that opportunities to serve can be somewhat limited in this arena. We also at our church have education where almost every quarter uh, a member could get involved by teaching at different levels, children or youth or adults, and being either a class teacher or an aide in a class or helping with our upcoming children's check-in and could serve in that way. But we've also come to realize as a church that it's time for us to do some more organization and better communication in the area of hospitality. Because there is a moment of opportunity every time a guest walks in our door. Every time somebody says, you know what, I'm going to visit the Bentonville Church for the first time today. And we want to do these two things every Sunday. We want to make the best first impression we can on our guests. And we want to create meaningful service opportunities for our members where you can know and you can understand, how am I connecting to people in service of the kingdom of God? Well, this is one of the ways, maybe one of the three big compartments of how we can do it every Sunday morning at this church. That's not all the ways to serve in church. It's just three of the biggest categories in worship and in education and in hospitality. And we, your church leaders and the staff at the church and volunteers at different levels are working so that next week and the week after, we can ask you, would some of you like to volunteer to serve in new roles of hospitality? And we hope that this week that you'll be praying about it. 
We hope that you'll be excited to step up and take a volunteer opportunity in the week to come because we believe that every guest who visits our church has shown great courage. They've gotten up and gotten dressed and come to a place where they don't know us and they don't know what's going to happen this morning and they are a gift from God. God's doing evangelism and outreach for us every time he brings somebody in the, in the front door or in the foyer and he gives us an opportunity to connect with them face to face and to respond to them with some good news. Amen, church. Amen. And so we'll leave you with this today. Uh, that we have more to say about it in weeks to come, but we're excited because we get to participate in the work of Christ. And this is what Jesus did for us. He welcomed us in when we were unknown and unworthy. He extended the invitation to you and to me, and we're welcome to the feast. We, he even says in a controversial place, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is the substance of his spiritual feast, that we come to know him, our Savior, who shed his blood blood for us and who let it, allowed his body to be broken for us on the cross so that we could be welcomed into the spiritual communion of the church. And we offer that good news to you today, that if you want into this, you could respond today and you could be welcomed in before the day is out. And our elders will be at the front and in the back ready to receive you. We hope that we can help you in some way. Please stand as we sing this invitation song together.